0: It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. If you are near a TV today or just glancing at the headlines on your phone, you're seeing it's all about the summit. The journalists love that word, summit. It's a big summit meeting between Joe Biden and Vladimir Putin. Summit used to be, you know, there'd be nuclear negotiations and they're going to come together and they're either going to make a deal or not make a deal. That's not the case here. In any event, I've got lots to say on that, but it's not the only story that we're going to deal with today on the podcast. As is our want here at Media Buzz Meter, we're going to deal with a wide variety of fascinating looks at politics, culture, and other stuff. Uh, For example, the Pink Floyd story. So Roger Waters of Pink Floyd, who is now 77 years old. How could all these rock stars be so old? What happened? I guess it's been many decades since they were at the peak of their popularity. But Mark Zuckerberg personally went to Pink Floyd, went to Waters, and offered him a lot of money to be able to use uh, one of the famous Pink Floyd songs from 1979, Another Brick in the Wall, Part 2, as opposed to Part 1, of course, uh, in an Instagram ad for Facebook. But the co-founder of the band uh, went public on this, very profane. He said he turned the little P word down flat. Uh, He said it arrived this morning with an offer for a huge, huge amount of money, uh, according to Rolling Stone. And the answer is, F you no effing way, says Roger Waters, and he wasn't done. He says, I only mention that because this is an insidious movement of them to take over absolutely everything. I will not be party to this BS Zuckerberg. So, all right, you didn't like the offer. I've read it was maybe it was $500,000 or something. Then you pass. (laughs) Obviously, he doesn't like Facebook. He's obviously uh, a liberal guy who has huge problems with the role of Facebook. And so he told Zuckerberg to go take a flying leap, but in less decorous language. Major League Baseball announcing yesterday... It's gonna crack down on pitchers using these foreign substances. Look, look, this is going on for decades and decades in baseball where, you know, whether it's a spitter or pine tar or anything like that. Uh, now it's apparently gotten out of hand with much more serious sticky substance it's called this sticky gate. So the league announcing that uh, anybody caught, any pitcher caught using any foreign substance, will be given an automatic. 10-game suspension starting in just five days. Team employees can also be suspended if uh, substances are found in the clubhouse or in the dugout. Starting pitchers will be checked more than once a game for these foreign substances. So here's the MLB commissioner, Rob Manfred, after an extensive process of repeated warnings without effect. In other words, I told them to stop and they're not doing it. Um, Gathering information from current and former players and blah, blah, blah comprehensive data collection. It sounds like, uh, you know, a guy from IBM talking. Uh, I have determined that new enforcement of foreign substances is needed to level the playing field. I find that really funny because level the playing field is usually a metaphor about making things even in politics or or diplomacy whatever. But in this case, there really is a playing field to be leveled. Uh, Manfred goes on to say, I understand there's a history of foreign substances being used on the bull, but what we're seeing today is objectively different with much tackier substances being used more frequently than ever before. Uh, It's becoming, it's an unfair lack of action. You know, what's really happening is the pitchers are dominating. The batting averages are down and this is very, very bad for baseball. So we'll see whether the the threats of these 10 game suspensions actually has an impact. I mean, if you're a pitcher, you don't want to be, lose, you know, the ability to play for 10 games, so you would think they would take it seriously. All right, this next item, uh, I will have to be a little bit delicate in cleaning it up here. It involves HBO and it involves Batman, the cartoon Batman. An HBO show, HBO Max show online called Harley Quinn. Maybe many of you are fans of it. I was not familiar with it. Uh, The Harley Quinn show is upset because it was uh, forced to cut a scene. This is according to Variety in which Batman, uh, let's just say in a one way, sort of way, pleasures Catwoman uh, by DC Comics because, quote, heroes don't do that. So this is the third season of the animated show and two of the co-creators spoke to Variety and they kind of came out and said it. Um, Justin Halpern, claimed they had a scene that got the axe. He said, it's incredibly gratifying and free to be using characters that are considered villains because you have so much more leeway. A perfect example is that in the third season of Harley, we had a moment when Batman was going to do something to Catwoman. And DC was like, you can't do that. You absolutely cannot do that. They're like, heroes don't do that. So they're upset. Um, DC, in its defense, has sort of an image to protect. Uh, Now, would it have been all right if they were just sleeping together? I don't know. But all this is good publicity for the HBO Max show. All right, let me uh, deal now with number one, Biden and Putin. So by the time some of you hear this, the whole thing may be over. When I'm speaking to you right now, uh, they've had the first of two meetings. Lasted about 90 minutes. And, you know, just to give you a, a sense of the media hype here. You have anchors that have flown to Geneva, certainly cable anchors, but also Nora O'Donnell of the CBS Evening News. You have uh, special graphics being made up by many networks, you know, the Putin-Biden showdown, uh, the summit, and all of that. Uh, And you have this as, you know, kind of the climax of a television series because, obviously, President Biden has been abroad, uh, meeting with the G7, meeting with NATO, uh, all the big buildup for this meeting. And then uh, when they, it, you know, there was live coverage everywhere of the arrivals. First Putin, and it was very, very consequential that he was on time because in the past he has kept other world leaders waiting. Then Biden arriving about 10 minutes later at this meeting place in Geneva. Uh, and then they had the pool spray where, you know, they sit there. And man, CNN, Wolf Blitzer and company were just going off on this like, wow, this is so awkward. This is so uncomfortable. Putin is not smiling. He has his legs apart. Biden's looking very stern as well. They don't look like they want to be there. Uh, really just analyzing every twitch uh, of the uh, of this thing. But look, they weren't going to yuck it up because it's, these are two adversaries. They've got a lot of business. They disagree on a lot of stuff. Um, here's a... Uh, a piece that will give you a sense of the pre-publicity buildup, Washington Post, a 46th president, and this is about before he gets to Geneva. 46th president bounded onto the global playground like a kid at recess on the first day of school, eager to kindle the old friendships that languished over the summer, introduced himself to the new kids in class. As Biden made his way through Cornwall, Brussels, and finally Geneva, the enthusiasm for his return to the world stage was palpable with him declaring, sometimes multiple times a day, America is back, period, paragraph, and so is he. America's back, Biden said Tuesday. America's back on the global scene, affirmed Charles Michel, president of the European Council. The Trump years had been hard for Biden, as well as for his democracy-minded pals worldwide. Uh, Emmanuel Macron, the president of France, Uh, who was shown in photographs, grinning, thumbs up, uh, sitting next to Biden overlooking the waters of Cabri Bay. I think it's great to have the U.S. president part of the club and very willing to cooperate. That was the headline, part of the club. Uh, Asked by reporters whether he had convinced allies that America is in fact back, Biden gestured with his sunglasses to the French president and said, ask him. Definitely, definitely, Macron replied. The tableau he depicted had the feel of a group of friends all huddling in their treehouse, scheming and getting their slingshots ready before sending out their comrades to take on the bully. Now, I don't want to say that Joe Biden has gotten incredibly positive press uh, in these, uh, on this European trip. I'll leave that all for you to decide. But he's back. America's back. He's part of the club. The club is the cool kids now. But then there's this guy Putin, he's not part of the club. All right, Uh, number two. Thoughtful piece, I think, in the New York Times scene setter for the meeting that's going on now. Uh, And before I get to this, let me just interrupt myself to say the following. Everybody knows... That there's not going to be some grand agreement reached. This is not one of those pre-packaged summits where there's been a lot of diplomatic work done at the undersecretary level. and They're going to come out. And to, they may come out and say we're going to cooperate on certain things. But you know, Biden is there to send a series of messages. Back off on the cyber hacking. Um, back off on any further thoughts of military action in Ukraine. What about the um, Americans who are still held there? And uh, at the same time, you know, can we cooperate on nuclear weapons? Can we cooperate on certain things that are in our mutual interest? Putin is there to hang tough, to make clear that he's not taking any orders from the president of the United States, that he believes that the U.S. has its own problems. The January 6th riot at the Capitol, for example, he's going to, you know, do what he did at that NBC interview. He's going to do the what about thing and they're going to have the dueling news conferences. There was a story saying that Biden didn't want to repeat what happened to Donald Trump in 2018 in Helsinki, where many non-Trump fans believed that he was completely outplayed by Putin and, you know, that Biden looked like he was sort of siding with Putin, our longtime adversary, president for life of Russia, by saying he believed Putin and not his own U.S. intelligence agencies on this question of did Russia interfere in the 2016 election. So back to this New York Times story. For 70 years, meetings between American presidents and Soviet or Russian leaders. I mean, back when it was the Soviet Union, you know, Russia has an economy about the size of Canada. The U.S. is, well, I don't know, 20 times larger. Uh, but back when it was the Soviet Union and you had, you know, a real Cold War going on and real nuclear arms race, that's, what, that's when they were called summits anyway. In the past, as the Times, uh, the, these meetings were dominated by one looming threat, the vast nuclear arsenals the two nations started amassing back in the 1940s. But now, for the first time, cyber weapons are being elevated to the top of the agenda. The shift has been brewing for a decade, as Russia and the U.S. have each turned to a growing arsenal of techniques in what has become a daily low-level conflict. But at a summit meeting, that's sort of jousting was usually treated as a kind of a sideshow, no more. The rising tempo and sophistication of recent attacks on American infrastructure, and this is absolutely true, the attack on the gas pipelines running up the East Coast that knocked out and created these long gas lines, the uh, attack on um, the, the largest beef provider, which provides about a quarter of America's beef to plants, The operations of hospitals on the internet has has revealed a set of vulnerabilities that no American president could ignore. But it will not be easy, because if we've learned anything, and the Times reinforces this, the traditional tools of deterrence have largely failed, because Putin loves to boast about, you know, how he's put a lot of money into nuclear torpedoes and hypersonic weapons, but he knows he can never use them. Mutually assured destruction, that is what has kept either country from unleashing nuclear weapons. But Biden has made clear he's going to give Putin a choice. Stop these attacks, crack down on the cyber criminals operating from your territory, or there will be sanctions. There will be a rising set of economic costs. But Biden himself has said that may not work. Putin may feel it's in his national interest and Russia's national interest to keep up the cyber attacks. And so that could be the new spiral, the new mutually assured destruction, not with nuclear weapons that wipe out and kill tens of millions of people, but with these attacks Uh, that are more than just, you know, a nuisance, more than just an inconvenience that can actually shut down fuel pipelines, shut down beef processing. And then what happens? Does the United States engage in those kind of attacks against the Russians? It's a real dilemma. Uh, But Putin can, as he did with NBC, say, look, this is not the Russian government doing this, these are criminals, I don't control them. You know, just as obviously, there are criminal elements in the United States that the U.S. government has not been able to control. Now, do I believe that is a fiction in the case of Russia that Putin has such great power, the Kremlin has such great power over that state that they could uh, arrest a lot of these people and uh, really really it? Yeah, that's what I think. Uh, Putin refuses to acknowledge that Russia uses these weapons at all. As he told Keir Simmons of NBC, we've been accused of all kinds of things. Election interference, cyber attacks, and so on. Not once, says Putin, not one time did they bother to produce any evidence of proof. Just unfounded accusation. Well, actually, there is some evidence of proof, but, you know, it does give Putin cover to say, we're not doing this as a government. In the past, nuclear weapons or military troops being sent, you know, going back to uh, Soviet troops, uh, going into Hungary, in the 1950s, going into a crackdown in Czechoslovakia in 1968. There wasn't really any ambiguity, you know? There's only one military uh, in the Soviet Union, now Russia. There's only one military in the United States. If there's some kind of military action, as in Ukraine, as in Crimea, it's the responsibility of that government. But now you have, you do have these sort of independent hackers, some of them would probably undoubtedly ties to the Kremlin or military, Russian military intelligence, and some of them may be doing things on their own. We have our own hackers here in the U.S. who are obviously are not under control of the U.S. government. So all this makes for a very complex geopolitical puzzle. It's not going to be resolved by this one set of meetings. Don't go anywhere. More BuzzBeater coming your way in just a moment. All right, number three. I talked yesterday on the podcast about John Stewart and what he did going on Stephen Colbert show Monday night and giving uh, basically doing a, a comedic but nonetheless emphatic rant about the Wuhan lab and how that theory isn't just a theory in John Stewart's view. It's like chocolate coming out of a factory in Hershey, Pennsylvania. That we need to take this seriously. And uh, he doesn't trust science, and he doesn't trust what science has become, and he doesn't trust scientists. Well, it's fascinating because John Stewart was always a liberal comedian who really liked Barack Obama. I interviewed him more than once, I believe, was totally went after uh, the Bush administration, especially over Iraq, but a whole bunch of other stuff. Suddenly, people on the right are saying, hey, this John Stewart guy, he's making a whole lot of sense. And people on the left are really pissed off. So here's a piece in National Review making the point, saying that this moment, what John Stewart did on CBS's light show is a turning point for comedy and for America, a damn burst. Scales fell from our eyes. Howard Beale, you know, network, I'm not mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. Charged himself up with holy fury and let it come thundering out. Thank you, John Stewart. Huzzah, hallelujah, and hot damn, that was good television. So it's being made, it's kind of like when John Stewart went on CNN's crossfire and said, you're hurting America. And then a couple months after that, there was no more crossfire. Okay, here's more from National Review. Um, you know, uh, for a year and a half, we've been told... That the only origin of the coronavirus was that it came from a bat or some kind of animal, and the idea of the Wuhan lab was debunked, disproven, nutty, a conspiracy theory, and just plain unsayable. Well, conservatives can deal out unpleasant truths all we want, but the culture at large has so marginalized us, says NR, that nothing we say really breaks through. All right, I've got to stop right there. And that's, sorry, that's not true conservatives have not been marginalized by the culture. Now, is the largely mainstream media culture and academic culture and all that larger liberal? Yes, of course. But gone long ago were the days when, you know, now that we have podcasts, talk radio, Fox News, you know, you name it, Newsmax, OAN, conservatives are very good at getting a message out. So I disagree on that. But it is true that the mainstream media, dominated by left-leaning people, um, made this... Uh, you know, uh, off-limits. You couldn't say it. If you were, you were conspiracy theorist. You were a French theorist. You were nutty. You were crazy. You were debunked. If you said it on Facebook, your post got deleted. So now, and, and this piece goes into the history. It's only a few years ago that comedy had defined itself as being the profession of those who would speak up loudly the forbidden truths that you could get in trouble for bringing up. Like if you go back to the days of Lenny Bruce, It was profanity, and then Seven Dirty Words, George Carlin, and all of that. Then there were these other taboos, racial, sexual, and at some point Stephen Colbert was fascinating about this. Stephen Colbert, you know, everybody knows the last four years, uh, a a dedicated anti-Trump liberal. He was in the position of kind of pushing back at his old pal John and saying, wait a minute, how can you say that? Where's the proof? The audience was not having it, the audience obviously goes to Colbert, is going to be a left-leading audience. Um, and so Colbert was in sort of a funny position. But, uh, you know, since Stewart, as National Review really puts it, is worshipped by the left of center media. Look, he's a very, very talented guy, as I talked about yesterday. I've interviewed him many times. At his peak, he seemed to enjoy as many adoring profiles as he had actual viewers. All right. When he speaks, lefties listen. And that is a really good point. So I don't know whether this made the damn break or it's a turning point for comedy or any of that. But it certainly was. It was good television, that's for sure. And it certainly was. It's almost like, you know, Nixon goes to China. If John Stewart, hero to liberals, funny guy, uh, who, who did, you know, he would, you know, whenever he would get in trouble, he'd say, ah, oh, look, I'm just a comedian. But he really, he changed the media. I mean, this is in uh, one of my books. Um, he changed the media By making it acceptable in the guise of comedy under the rubric of this is just, you know, John, this is just uh, Comedy Central, The Daily Show. He would go after and he would fact check and use uh, video clips to take down arguments he didn't agree with particularly during the Bush administration. And then it became more common, you know, for cable news which became more polarized to do that using some of those techniques. Brian Williams, when he was the NBC anchor, uh, would go on The Daily Show. And Jon Stewart would be interviewed by NBC. And he really did use his smarts. And a lot of people, you know, on the right thought, you know, he was just basically an ideologue who happened to be funny. But now they're kind of embracing him. So bottom line on National Review, Stewart granted permission to the American left to finally admit that the theory conservatives have been discussing for more than a year as the road of inquiry, we should all be heading down. But now Stewart is getting backlash The blaze. The conservative side has rounded up some online reaction. I have watched you for years. Never been disappointed until tonight. Spewing an unproven outside theory is extremely irresponsible. The nuts on the right do not need more crazy juice. Stewart was being racist as F. And it doesn't matter where a pathogen arises, does it? I don't recall pointing fingers at French airline workers. Do you? Uh, John Stewart talking about a COVID lab leak hypothesis as if he became a crazy MAGA Republican WTF. F, that was disappointing. Not just John Stewart's anti-Chinese rants, but that Stephen Colbert was cool with it. Actually, he wasn't. What John Stewart did was downright dangerous to all Asian Americans. Okay, look, this is John Stewart's opinion as a comedian and social critic. You can agree. You not agree. He's not being a racist. He's not denouncing the Chinese. He wasn't even going to, like, they deliberately cooked this up in order to poison the world. He just said that it is, in his view, extremely, extremely likely that this did emerge from the Wuhan lab. So now you see, now John Stewart is getting a taste of what it's like when you piss off the left. Meanwhile, Washington Post has a big deep dive on this theory, starting with... Um, Uh, a scene back in the very beginning of February 2020. Francis Collins, director of NIH, uh, ducked out of his granddaughter's swim meet to do a a call with other scientists. They were taking very seriously at the beginning. This is the Trump administration now. Whether or not this began at the Wuhan lab. Christian Anderson, professor of uh, immunology at uh, Scripps Research in La Jolla, California, had written to Fauci. They all looked into it. Um, they all thought it might have something to it, or many of them did, not all of them. And ultimately, over the next several weeks, the scientists unanimously concluded there was no evidence of lab manipulation. Now, that wasn't a definitive conclusion, but the point is they tried to find it, they tried to prove it, they couldn't find a smoking gun. Now, that didn't mean it went away. Some people continued to pursue this theory. Fauci obviously often threw cold water on it, now says he had an open mind but some pretty good reporting there on what happened in the early weeks. All right, number four. The Atlantic has a piece about Trump and the midterms and so forth. This is a pretty eye-catching lead here. Quote from Steve Bannon, The Republican Party is just a name. The bulk of it is a populist nationalist party led by Donald Trump. The rest of it? The Republican Party pre-2016 are the modern Whigs, who you may recall uh, in the 1850s collapsed and went out of existence. Okay, So the larger point here is that the GOP today is trying to find its identity. If you go to the National Republican Senatorial Committee website, you see all this Trump merchandise. An $18.75 t-shirt with a picture of Trump and a caption, Still my president. A $4 decal with a picture of Trump. Miss me yet? But then on the same website, you see Lisa Murkowski, who voted uh, for his conviction on impeachment charges, uh, trying to raise money in Alaska. So... A Reuters survey last month showed that 53 percent of Republicans consider Trump to be the true president. 61 percent believe the lie, according to, as The Atlantic puts it, that the election was stolen. Um, This goes on to say that, you know, there's this new theory that when we hear after the 2022 midterms, if the GOP takes over the House, which I continue to believe is pretty likely, Mr. Speaker, it's going to be Donald Trump. Not that he's going to run for Congress, because he could just be appointed. You don't have to be a sitting member of the House to be named Speaker. So if he can convince enough Republicans to push Kevin McCarthy aside, he becomes Speaker. Seems kind of far-fetched to me. Trump hasn't ruled it out, as the Atlantic notes. Bannon has this sort of theory that he gives to the Atlantic, saying, Trump will become Speaker, but he'll only serve 100 days. He'll set in motion the Republican policy agenda. He'll start a bunch of investigations, including an impeachment inquiry into Biden. What has Biden done? I don't know. We'll figure something out. Then Trump would step down, turn the gavel over to McCarthy, and prepare to run for president in 2024. That would be the plan. Uh, Bannon says, I actually believe there'll be overwhelming evidence at that time to impeach Biden, just as they did Trump. What's good for the goose is good for the gander. Fine, you impeached our guy. We're going to impeach your guy. On the 101st day, Bannon said... He'll announce his candidacy for presidency and will be off to the races. Um, I would say that all sounds pretty far-fetched. I don't think Donald Trump's going to want to become Speaker of the House, one of 435 House members, even as the leader, uh, or necessarily that he'd have the votes. But stranger things have happened. And that's uh, what Steve Bannon, at least, as he speaking for himself, as he discusses with Donald, after his pardon, i uh, not sure, we'll need some more reporting on that. And finally, um, this is one of these trend pieces that actually should have all of our attention. It's in the New York Times. It's about declining birth rates here in America. I talked about China a while ago, which, you know, lifted the one-child policy and the two-child policy. Well, it used to be that delaying parenthood was basically upper-middle-class Americans, especially on the coast, highly educated women. They would put off having a baby until their careers were on track. So usually in their 30s, they would start to have children. Over the past decade, and the Times has the numbers here, women, more women at least, of all social classes are prioritizing their own education and careers and delaying childbearing to the point where, I didn't know this, and I can't believe this this has not been more widely publicized, We are currently experiencing the slowest growth of the American population since the 1930s, which, of course, is Great Depression time. You have to go back 90 years to find a time when the birth rate was so low. Women under 30, again, of any social class, much less likely to have children. Since 2007, the birth rate for women in their 20s has fallen by 28%. biggest decline has been among unmarried women. The only age group in which birth rate rose in this same period, women in their 30s and 40s. but Even that is beginning to decline a bit in the past three years. So why is this happening? Um, for one thing, the birth rate is falling fastest in places with the greatest job growth, where women would have more incentive to wait because they can get a good job. So you go to places like uh, Denver, the county surrounding Denver, birth rate down 38%. You go to Phoenix and surrounding Maricopa County, Birth rate down 33%. Now, uh, Times reporters interviewed a whole bunch of women in those two areas. I guess they focused on that. Some said they didn't feel they could afford to have a baby. They cited the cost of childcare, the cost of housing, sometimes student debt that they still had to pay off. Many also said they wanted to get their careers set first and were kind of satisfied that they were exerting control over their fertility and their lives in a way that their mothers had not Certain women interviewed saying, you know, I'm not going to get pregnant. I'm not going to get pregnant. My parents worked very hard for me to be able to have a good education and get a good job, and I'm going to take care of that first. And the one ethnic group where this is is being seen in the most dramatic fashion, Hispanic women who once had by far the highest fertility uh, rate of any major racial ethnic group have now had the largest single drop in fertility of any group, more than a third since 2007. In Arizona, Hispanic women made up approximately 60 percent of the decline in births in that state since 2007. I mean, this has huge implications, and you know, obviously, their choice—they can do whatever they want. But you know, if we're if we fall below the replacement rate, which I didn't—the story doesn't say that that has happened. But the more and more that uh, birth rates go down or motherhood is delayed, the more and more you have fewer young people working to support older people who are retiring on Social Security, getting Medicare benefits. Um, It obviously can sap your strength as a country because you become a much older country. This has happened in certain places uh, like China, like Japan, I believe. Um, And there are just huge implications that we have to grapple with. Um, Now, should getting a good paying job and being able to be a mother, even in your 20s, be so difficult? It should not. And I'm sure there are a lot of academics who will point out ways in which that could be dealt with. But this is the reality, and women are getting to make those decisions. And as the piece points out, you know, lots of upper and upper middle class women have been making these decisions in the modern world, in the modern economy for a very long time, but now they're being joined by people, women, down the income ladder. And in that sense, I think it's healthy because everybody should get their own choice. All right. Nice to have you along for the ride. I'll have a lot more to say about the Biden-Putin showdown on tomorrow's podcast. Hope you'll subscribe, and we'll see you tomorrow with more BuzzFeed.